Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. We're going to actually read down through verse 12 this morning. The sermon this morning, though, will be on verses 1 through 8. And then next week, we will tackle 9 through 12. I want to thank Josh, who's not here this morning. Josh did a phenomenal job for us last week as he preached through the first chapter of 1 Peter, just finished the whole chapter and did such a phenomenal job with that. I'm just so thankful for him and Hannah and their family and just wonderful that God brought them here, here to us. Just a pretty cool thing. We're, we're so thankful. They're not here. They're puking at home. So we got the pukes earlier. We got the pukes earlier this week and then and we didn't run into them, so they independently got the pukes from somebody else. So, Tell you what, I'd rather have 24 hours of the pukes, though, than the stuff that was going around in the summer and, and the two-week long of the, the cough or the whatever that stuff was that the government released on us all. Okay, now, um, <clears throat> so the word of the Lord. Let's go here. <laughs> Aren't you glad that we can have fun when we come together? Right? Thank you for not holding that against me. That's something we can all laugh about. All right. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As said, this is the word of the Lord. Josh was so right last week, we have to understand the proper order in the scriptures of promises and command. We have to understand it is finished before the commands to get to work. And those promises and commands are everywhere in Scripture. And if we get the misordering in, in not the right order, then it's going to bring a lot of confusion to our life and to our growth as human beings. Get to work never leads to it is finished. We have to understand that. Get to work never leads to it is finished. That's the improper order. 
We can't ever finish the work that God has called us to. There's always more. And we can't fully complete it. And the Bible's clear on this over and over again. And 1 Peter is full of good news that Jesus did, in fact, do the work that's required for us to be right before the Lord. It's full of good news about God's work on behalf of sinners. In fact, chapter 1 ends with this eternal gospel word. And Joshua's right to connect chapter 1 to chapter 2. In fact, it, it finishes in verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The word that never fades away is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. 50 billion years from now, 50 billion years from now, we will still be talking about this thing that the angels long to look into, the glorious redemption of Jesus Christ as he came to redeem, set free, save, eternally save sinners. So in light of this glorious gospel worthy of 50 billion years of cont contemplation and adoration, and then when we get to 50 billion years that way, it'll be worthy of 50 billion more years of worship and adoration and contemplation. In light of that glorious gospel that will never fade away, we get another therefore. And I won't go in to explain the reasons why therefores are there, because Josh, again, did such a good job with that. In the ESV, instead of saying therefore, it says so. Same concept. Instead of therefore, it's so. The NASB, NASB says therefore, I believe. It's the exact same concept. We are told, in light of this glorious, eternal good news that will never fade away, put away all malice and all deceit, all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So we know the glorious good news. It is finished. And now we have commandments. Now, because of that, in light of what's finished, in light of this glorious good news that angels long to look into, in light of that, therefore, or so... Put away some stuff. Get to work. Here's the work that you want to work towards, that you want to get away and out of your life. We see four things here that are listed. Excuse me, five things. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. These are all attributes of a former way of life. Life in the flesh. What is malice? Jesus had to die for malice. This anger, this wicked anger is something that should not be a part of our life. If you deal with anger regularly, fits of rage or anger that just regularly just sits there in your, in your gut that just can't go away and you don't know why it's always there and you always feel like a spring that's just ready to pop, that's ready to, to spring, well, quit that. Here's the command today. Jesus died for sins like that. Your sin of anger or malice, your sin of malice required Jesus dying for it. And because you know what Christ has done for you, put that out of your life. So the real simple step is leave today and stop being so angry. And if you don't know why you're angry, talk to your wife, talk to your friend, talk to whoever and ask for prayer and say, I've got to stop being angry. I've got to put away this malice, this vindictive anger that just feels like it's always there. So because of what Christ has done for you, quit that. Stop being an angry person. That shouldn't be a part of our lives. What about deceit or deception? Put away all deceit. Christians are not to be liars. Not little white lies, not little lies that make other people feel good, which little white lies. Uh, we don't walk in deception. We're truthful people. If you have a tendency, and, and one ways that when people have a, a tendency to lie and feel, feel okay about it is uh, embellishers. An embellisher is somebody who tells a story and just sprinkles a little bit of lies on top because they see the story's not going very well. And so you 
tell it a little bit inflated, you tell it a little bit embellished because you want the story to go better in the conversation. So you embellish the truth. Or if you're subtly trying to manipulate, a liar will convince themselves that it's okay because it's for the overall good. And so deceit comes in and the, the Christian can unfortunately convince themselves that, that, that I'm deceiving somebody for their own good. And it really is a matter of control trying to pull the levers, pull the control, and this is deceit. But for the Christian, we, we don't get to be deceitful because Jesus had to, again, die for sins such as those. So stop being deceitful. Tell the truth. Stop embellishing and stop manipulating. Manipulation is lying to somebody to control them. And so Christians, put that away. What about hypocrisy? Hypocrisy. Now, hypocrites don't repent. Christians do repent. When we recognize there's an area in our life where we are saying one thing and doing another, we seek to stop it. Okay? Because of this eternal word, because of how grateful we are for what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, I don't want to be a hypocrite. That's my former way of life. I, want to, I don't want to say one thing and do another. I want to be a, a man that does what he says he's going to do. And then when I fall short, I quickly come to the Lord and if I've hurt anybody else by my hypocrisy, I quickly come to that person. I say, you know what? I'm sorry. Uh, it's an e it should be an easy thing to repent and to turn when you know that you're forgiven. Say, I'm sorry. That was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And I don't want to walk in hypocrisy. I want to walk in truth. What about envy? Envy. Envy is this weird thing that drives governments. It drives people. It drives the masses. People want what other people have, and they live their life in the pursuit of that thing. It's, it's covetousness and envy. They walk, walk hand in hand. Uh, envy will destroy you, and it will never satisfy you. And Christians have come to this, this point where we realize, I, I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and the God of the universe has promised to provide every single one of my needs, so I don't have to be envious of what anybody else has. God owns everything, and I'm in the palm of his hand, and he has promised to take care of me. So I don't have to be envious. And yet envy is still a temptation. I'll, uh, on Instagram every once in a while, there's an Instagram uh, profile called Cabin in the Woods or something like that. And these cabins pop up, and I just think, how great would that be, and how much money are they making on Airbnb? And I want that. And envy rises up. And then I remember God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns a thousand hills. And I can trust him. I don't have to be envious. I can be patient as I'm walking in wisdom with what the Lord has given now. We don't need to be envious. So if you're dealing with envy, then take that to the Lord today. Talk to somebody and say, God, help me deal with that. I've got to slay that giant. I've got to slay that dragon. It's got to stop. And uh, envy also comes up in the, in the life that we wished we had rather than the life we actually have. And this is a temptation of many to wish their life away. It's seen in the movie Click. I don't know if you've seen the movie Click before. It's an Adam Sandler movie. And if you want to bawl your eyes out, you're just in the mood to cry, watch the movie Click. And uh, if you, you know, don't want to torture yourself, don't watch the movie Click. But in that movie, he, he gets a programming, a, a miraculous Christopher Walken gives him this remote. And he's able to miraculously fast forward the things in his life that he doesn't like. And then this remote eventually goes on autopilot and it fast forwards all the things anticipating what he's not going to like and it fast forwards his life through these mundane boring things and what ends up happening is he fast forwards through everything that actually matters like playing with his children 
And at one scene, it's just this powerful scene, this one that Michael Foster has talked about before, but this powerful scene in the movie where he's going to dance with his daughter who's about to get married. And he's walking away, and he's dancing with his daughter. It's really weird. He goes to walk away, and the stepdad steps in, and the daughter calls him dad. And it's just this devastating point, and you're just sobbing, and it's, it's sad. And, um, he, he wished away his life. And envy is like that. It may not be over the, the things that typically happen with covetousness, where I want that boat, I want that car, I want that house, I want that uh, whatever TV, or want that, you know, whatever it may be that you, the, the want, uh, that new fishing pole. Where's Ryan Deaton at today, by the way? Speaking of fishing, the Deatons aren't here. Um, whatever it may be that you're covetousness about, or you're envious about, okay, it, it may not be those classic things, but it could be, I wish we had a different life. I wish we lived in a different place. And that's envy. That will destroy you. So Christians, Paul's saying, have come to the point where it's like, okay, I want to get that out of my life. I've recognized that as sin, and so I'm going to turn from that sin, and I'm going to walk in obedience, trusting what God has given me. And then slander. Slander is this weird sin. Slander, it's almost and almost always rooted in pride. Slander is about building up oneself, feeling good about yourself at the expense of somebody else. That's typically what it's rooted in. Well, I'm going to slander somebody's name. I'm going to gossip about somebody. And, and gossip is just dehumanization of, of a person, creating a person into an object, and then talking bad about them. Rather than a person to be loved, cared for, and prayed for, or confronted face-to-face, -face, they become a person that's objectified, that's to be mocked or ridiculed or talked about rather than talked to. Gossip is what cowards do when they're in a, in, unable to go and talk to somebody to their face. They talk around somebody rather than to somebody. And slander is much the same way. It's lies, usually rooted in the pride of life, thinking better about yourself than you ought. And in light of God's grace, we are free from having to slander other people or look down on other people because we know we are no better than they are and we're secure in Christ. I'm not going to slander another, an image bearer. I'm going to go talk to, to that person rather than talking around that person. So there's some things that we put away. This is what we do. In light of the truth of the gospel, put away this stuff. Get it out of your life. But Paul, excuse me, Peter goes on and he tells us to be like newborn infants. Now, in Hebrews chapter 5, being like an infant is, is, is compared to being an infant in the faith. You should be grown up by now. Start eating some meat for goodness sake. Okay, there's for a, verses for all the vegetarians there. Start eating some meat for goodness sake. Okay, you're missing out on life. And Milk or being an infant is compared to spiritual immaturity. Here, being an infant and being like a nursing baby is compared to spiritual maturity. This is something for all of us. This is what we should long for. So let's read it. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. We all should be like nursing infants. <laughs> okay? Nursing infants love to nurse. They love nursing. It's like the highlight of their life. Give me some milk. And they see that mama, and they want that mama, yes, to love on mama, but they want some milk, okay? And nursing infants, when they get done drinking and nursing, what ends up happening? You get milk drunk babies. They're just, I mean, loving life so much where it's like they puke a little bit, sleep a little bit, and wake up and do the exact same thing after they pooped a little bit. They love to nurse. They get hurt, I want to nurse. They want, and so the Bible is comparing us to a little nursing baby and saying, be like that. 
as a newborn baby longs for nourishment, we should long for spiritual nourishment. We should always and forever be in this perpetual state of longing for that which brings us sustenance spiritually. We should always be longing to get the nutrients and the vitamins that we need spiritually. There should be this hunger from us toward anything that grows us up into our salvation. We want to grow up into this salvation. It says, we should long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Grow up into what's true about us. So, what is this milk? When we say spiritual milk, we know what the physical milk is. A baby's drinking breast milk. What is the spiritual breast milk? What is it? <laughs> it's weird talking about breast milk in a sermon here, but what is spiritual breast milk? What is this that we should be longing for, that we should be seeking nourishment from? What are the things that help us grow into our salvation? Now, what's true about us is that we are already saved. We have been justified. And now that we are justified, this glorious good news that's been proclaimed to us, this eternal word that's been proclaimed, we are now growing into what's true about us. We're learning to live like it, learning to live like saved people. So what is spiritual milk? Well, Peter doesn't tell us explicitly what it is, but from the scriptures as a whole, we know what spiritual things are. Spiritual people long for spiritual things. Spiritual things for us that we should long for like a newborn infant. What is a spiritual milk? Things like the word of God. We should long to hear from God. When we get in God's word, we hear from him. We are like newborn infants. Give me some of that. I want some of that. I need some of that. And I, if I don't get it, I'm going to cry, kick, and scream. I need to hear from God. And so i got to wake up, or I'm going to stay up, or I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get some of it. I'm going to build my schedule around it. I'm going to make it a priority in my life. Every single parent knows when a baby is hungry because that baby's going to let you know. I'm crying out. And so for us, with spiritual milk, we long for things like the Word of God. We long for things like prayer. It's nourishing to our spiritual health. We long for things like fellowship. We long for things like Communion, the table, the Lord's table. We long for things like observing baptism. We long for mutual encouragement. We long to come here and love on one another, to take care of one another. We long for these things. This is spiritual milk. So we should always and perpetually be in the state like an infant baby, longing for things that are spiritual. God, I have to have your word. I have to have prayer. I have to have fellowship. I need it, God. Give it to me. We got to be like a baby. So here's the big news. Grow up. Be like a baby. <laughs> That's what we got to do. I, I love how the Bible does these kind of metaphors where Jesus will say, like, be like a, ki- be like a child. Like, look at the kids. To, to such belong the kingdom of God. Like, learn, learn to be like a child. Grow up into being a child. Don't be childish. Don't be the kind of person that says, I never want to grow up. People who say that kind of stuff actually don't grow up. They just push away responsibility their entire life. You should want to grow up. That's a good thing. But part of growing up is also growing down. I've got a friend of mine that wrote a book called uh, Growing Up and Growing Down or something to that effect. So we're always, as we're growing in the Christian faith, remaining like this little baby and, and wanting to be nourished with spiritual milk. And then we're getting this conditional statement. That is, if, verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You should be like this baby if you have tasted the goodness of of the Lord. Um, if you've not tasted of the goodness of the Lord, 
spiritual milk will always be a salvation project for you. You're going to look like you're doing the same things, going through the motions spiritually. You're reading your Bible. You're wanting to pray. You're wanting to gather with God's people. You're going to try this church thing out for a little while. But if you've not tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you don't have that proper order, then you ha- you'll be confused thinking that spiritual milk can save you. And spiritual milk cannot justify anyone. Spiritual milk is for those who have tasted and, the se- and seen that the Lord is good. If you've tasted the goodness of the Lord, you are ready for the spiritual milk. That's the proper order that Josh was talking about last week and that we need to be reminded of again this week. Um, Milk, like when a baby is nursing, milk does not make that baby alive. Physical milk doesn't make that baby alive. It sustains and grows that baby that already is alive. And so for us, we have to keep that in mind that spiritual milk is for spiritually living people. And it's only for spiritual living people. We have to know that. Or we'll be on this perpetual treadmill, treadmill of self-salvation, going through spiritual motions. And how many people and how many of your stories have or include testimonies like that, where I've gone through the motions, grew up going to church, or I went to church for years or decades, but I never really understood the gospel. I was, I was doing the spiritual things, but didn't actually have an appetite, didn't actually have the taste, I never, didn't ever actually see or taste that the Lord is good. How many people in the world today think they have tried Christianity or tried religion and they actually have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good? They've just done spiritual stuff. They've gone to church or they've prayed a prayer here and there or they've done some spiritual things but they've never been born again and so they can never actually taste or, or drink of the spiritual milk. Now for those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, those who are putting away all these things, those who have seen the glory of what the gospel is and and what Christ has done, and now those who are walking and drinking and eating of this spiritual drink and food, we're told some pretty neat things. We're going to be introduced to some things by Peter here that is, uh, it it has to do with the age and the age to come and and what God is doing in the world right now and what God was doing pre and post Pentecost, the temple of God, where is the temple of God? We're going to see some incredible things about what God is doing in you. Look at verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through faith. For those who have tasted that the Lord is good, for those who have been born again, we continue to come to Christ. Verse 4, as you come to him, we continually come to Jesus. We never stop coming to Jesus. For those who have been born again, this this nourishment that we're walking in, it's an always and a forever turning back to the Lord and saying, I'm never going to get past you, Jesus. I love you. You're my master. You're my Lord. I'm going to keep coming to you all the days of my life. And there's times in our life where we we can still, as Christians, be wearied and heavy laden. So we keep coming to Jesus, not just after, not just when we become a Christian, but for the rest of our lives, we're continuing to come to Christ. He is this living Stone, we keep coming to him. Now, um, at this point in history, in the early 60s, AD 60, the Jewish temple was still standing. Now, the Spirit of God had been removed from that temple, the Spirit of God had descended upon the people of God, but the temple itself was still standing until AD 70. 
And so there it was. And then here is Peter talking about temple. He's using temple language. And even before God's judgment on Jerusalem, so the temple language, the, the temple still standing, even before God's judgment on Jerusalem, even before the abomination of desolation spoke of by Daniel, Daniel and the destruction of the temple, Peter is going to teach us about the temple of God. He understands the temple of God rightly, and we should understand what Peter knows through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as well. Peter knows where the Spirit of God dwells. He knows upon whom the rock, this cornerstone, that the church is built. And what we're going to see is that there has been a great relocation of the temple from Jerusalem into the hearts of people and out throughout the entire world. And right now, there is a global temple built in the last days that's all over this earth right now, and it's on every single continent. And it's the people of God. The Spirit of God, as brick by brick, he is building up this temple. It's going global, and it's been going global for 2,000 years. And here is the temple of God in our midst right now. When you walk out this door, the temple of God is going with you, where the presence of God resides. Let's take a look. Jesus is this living stone, okay? Look back at verse 4b. A living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jesus is chosen by God the Father, as a, and he is the precious son. And now, like Jesus, who is this living stone, we are now living stones being built up as God's spiritual house. Jesus is a living stone, and now we ourselves are living stones being built up into this spiritual house. So each one of us in this room are stones that the Spirit of God is building up as the temple of God. Piece by piece, building the temple of God. And this is happening here in Carbondale. It's happening in Marion. It's happening in Murfreesboro. It's happening in every single community around here. It's happening in every single state in the United States. And like I said, on every single continent. Block by block, the Spirit of God taking living stones and building up His church, this church that can't be stopped, again, by the gates of hell. We are these living stones, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, holy and precious. That's Jesus. We are building, being built up into this spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now, we are these living stones, now, they were, and now we are, a holy priesthood. We'll look at that a little bit more next week. And we are offering spiritual sacrifices, not physical. What did the priests do in the physical temple? They offered physical sacrifices. Jesus came as a physical sacrifice to, to end all physical sacrifices once for all. And now we, as living stones, are being built in this temple, and we are breaking ourselves, our own bodies, and living as a spiritual sacrifice, giving spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. And these spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's so neat, I think, about this. Um, spiritual sacrifices. When you and I are obeying the Lord, denying ourselves and obeying the Lord, we are giving our bodies as living sacrifices. It's not just through persecution or suffering that we give our bodies as living sacrifices, although that includes giving our, our bodies, our, our very bodies, to things like persecution and suffering and even, even um, death, martyrdom. 
But it also includes denying ourselves, taking our, up our cross and following Jesus. Self-denial. Okay, I'm, God, I'm going to lay down what I think, and I'm going to take up what you say. I'm going to lay down what I want to do, and I'm going to walk in repentance here. I'm going to stop being malicious. I'm going to stop being deceitful. I'm going to stop being slanderous. Uh, because I, I'm, I'm living with spiritual sacrifices here. I'm making spiritual sacrifices here. And here's the truth about the Christian life. When we obey the Lord, we always obey the Lord imperfectly. I've heard this. This is uh, many preachers. I've heard this, but it's so great. Right now, Ransom and Valor are doing a really good job in their drawing. They are artists. They receive that gift from their mom, and uh, they can just—they're very good. They always color within the lines. If you ever say to my kids ever like that looks like scribble, that's devastating to them because they don't scribble. They draw and they draw inside the lines and they color inside the lines. They're very, very good at that. Now, it's—it's uh, it's not even though it's very good. It's not like. Uh, Vincent Van Gogh. I mean, it's not like, is that the right name? Yeah. Um, it's not like they're still kids, right? So they come to me, and I've got pictures everywhere. I've got Ninjago drawings everywhere, just everywhere. And um, when I get a new Ninjago thing, they, because they're my child, again, it's not something that's going to be framed and sold for a million dollars, but it's acceptable to me because they, they did that work. And not because it's perfect work. That's the glorious thing about those who have been justified by God is God now accepts our imperfect work through Jesus Christ as children. Thank you. Thank you. And we seek to honor and obey and, and make happy, not in a justifying way, but our, we want to we please our Heavenly Father through the work of our hands. And we're going to always do imperfect work for the rest of our life. Our work will not compare to the work of God, but whatever God does in us and goes through us, we give back to him. And these spiritual sacrifices are made by these living stones. And through these spiritual sacrifices, God continues to use us imperfect people to build his people, to build his temple that's now global. I mean, as you think about this, it's so neat to see what Peter is saying here. And as he talks about this holy priesthood, this is the concept, the priesthood of all believers. It's a concept that the the Protestants rediscovered, this priesthood of all believers. Wait a minute. We don't have to go to a priest to have access to God or to talk to God. I mean, we can actually talk with the Spirit of God and we can come into the Holy of Holies as God's people. Me, measly me, can walk into the Holy of Holies and actually talk to God in my home or in my garden or out back or on a walk. Or in the car, I get access to the holy of holies. This is what Peter is saying. You are a holy priesthood. It's not just Aaron in the Old Testament. It's not just the Levites. You are a holy priesthood. You have the spirit of God within you. You need no man to mediate between you and God because Jesus is your mediator. There's a great commentary by John Phillips. I've read this to you in whole a couple years ago. But he was commenting on the book of Hebrews, and I think it's fitting today. And it's a little lengthy, but it's a stand up and shout kind of section here, and I want to read it to you. Both Jew and Gentile Christian alike are called a priesthood of God, holy priesthood, who are offering these spiritual sacrifices. Listen to this. Imagine with me a Moabite of old gazing down upon the tabernacle of Israel from some lofty hillside. Are you there? Lofty hillside. We're looking down on the temple of old, and we're just looking at it, okay? So now we're all this Moabite standing up on a high hill, looking down 
on the tabernacle of Israel from some lofty hillside. This Moabite was attracted to what he sees, so this is about the tabernacle. It could equally apply to the temple. The Moabite is attracted to what he sees, so he descends down the hill and takes way toward the tabernacle. He walks around the high wall of dazzling linen until he comes to a gate, and at that gate he sees a man. May I go in there? He asks, pointing to the gate where all the bustle of activity in the tabernacle's outer court can be seen. Who are you? Demands the man suspiciously. And he like turns his mouth like that. Who are you? Talks like that as he talks to the man. Well, I'm from Moab, the stranger replies. Well, I'm sorry, but you can't go in there. You see, it's not for you. The law of Moses has barred the Moabite from any part in the worship of Israel until the 10th generation. The Moabite looked so sad and said, well, what would I have to do to go in there? Well, you would have to be born again, the gatekeeper replies. You would have to be born an Israelite of the tribe of Judah or of the tribe of Benjamin or of Dan. Oh, well, I wish I had been born an Israelite, the Moabite says as he looks again. And he sees one of the priests having offered a sacrifice at the brazen altar and the priest that cleansed himself at the brazen laver. And then the Moabite sees the priests enter the tabernacle's interior. Well, what's in there? Asked the Moabite. Inside the main building, I mean. Well, the gatekeeper says, that's the tabernacle itself. Inside it contains a lampstand, a table, and an altar of gold. The man you saw was a priest. He will trim the lamp, eat the bread upon the table, and burn the incense to a living God upon the golden altar. Ah, sighs the Moabite. I wish I were an Israelite so I could do that. I would so love to worship God in there and trim the lamp and offer him incense and eat bread at the table. Oh, oh no, the gatekeeper sighs. Oh, no, the gatekeeper hastens to say, even I couldn't do that. To worship in the holy place, one must not only be born an Israelite, one must be born of the tribe of Levi and of the family of Aaron. This man from Moab Moab sighs again, oh, I wish I had been born an Israelite of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. And then he gazed wistfully at the closed tabernacle door and he says, what else is in there? Well, there's a veil. It's a beautiful veil. I'm told it divides the tabernacle in two. Beyond the veil is what we call the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. Well, what's in the Holy of Holies, the Moabite asks. Well, there's a sacred chest in there. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. It contains holy memorials of our past. Its top is gold, and we call that the mercy seat because God sits there between the golden cherubim. Do you see the pillar of cloud hovering over the tabernacle? That's the Shekinah glory cloud. It rests on the mercy, said the gatekeeper. Again, a look of longing comes upon the face of the Moabite man. Oh, he said, if only I were a priest, how I would love to go into the holy of holies and gaze upon the glory of God and worship him and the beauty of his holiness. Oh, no, said the man at the gate. You couldn't do that even if you were a priest. Only the high priest may enter the holy place, the most holy place. Only he can go in there, nobody else. The heart of the man from Moab yearns once more. Oh, he cried, if only I had been born an Israelite of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. If only I had been born a high priest, I would go in there every day. 
I would go in there three times a day. I would worship continually in the Holy of Holies. And the gatekeeper looked at the man from Moab again once more, and he said, oh, no. He said, you couldn't do that. You couldn't do that. Even the high priest of Israel can go in there only once a year. And then only after the most elaborate preparations, and even then only for a little while. Sadly, the Moabite turned away. He had no hope at all in the world of ever entering in there. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest who is over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And this is the tremendous word of welcome extended to the Jew and Gentile alike to come in and to worship, not in the holiest place of the human temple, but into the holy of holies, into heaven itself by the blood of Jesus. And friends, this is what Peter is saying, is that you are a holy priesthood. You have access to God, direct access to God, because of this eternal word that was preached to you. Into the holy of holies, into the presence of God without dying. Friends, we get to experience the presence of God in a way the people of old never got to. And both Jew and Gentile alike, as the people of God, are called a holy priesthood that God is building up. And every day, even right now, we have access through the name of Jesus. Jesus, I come to you, and I pray to my heavenly Father, and we are in the presence of the holy of holies. And we get to come boldly before the holy of holies because of the blood of Jesus. Friends, this is good news. This is what the angels long to see. And what we're being told here is that God is building up this temple, his church, those who get to be in the very presence of God. And when we deny ourselves and obey Jesus, we are offering these spiritual sacrifices. And how glorious it is that these sacrifices are accepted through Jesus Christ, the temple of God. We in this room are the temple of God that's been built and is being built in the last days. You are where the presence of God dwells. It's an amazing thing. Well, what's the chief cornerstone of this temple? And this is an amazing thing too. Peter, over and over again, goes to great lengths. Even in this book, what we're going to see here, is the Holy Spirit of God goes to great lengths to help us to see what Peter understood in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus said, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build the church. Peter did not understand that to mean that P Peter is the cornerstone of the church. How do we know that? Because here's what the Holy Spirit of God led Peter to write. Who is the cornerstone of this great temple that's being built? We all know what a cornerstone is, right? If you get the cornerstone wrong, everything else is going to be wrong. The foundation is going to be wrong. The cornerstone has to be in the right spot. And everything is built from that cornerstone. Look at verse 6. This is so cool. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So it is honor for those who believe, for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, they stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Notice Peter quotes from Isaiah and then Psalms and then Isaiah again to make his point. 
Jesus is the cornerstone of this temple that's being built. He is the stone in Zion, the cornerstone, the stone stone that the builders rejected, and even the rock of offense. And this is coming through the Apostle Peter. This is massive. The church is not built on any man. And the church is not built on Peter. We know Peter. Praise God, right? Who is the church built on? The rock of offense, the cornerstone, the stone in Zion. Friends, this is Jesus Christ. He is the rock that makes all the difference. Like without Jesus, you remove that cornerstone, there's no building being built. It's all, it's all contorted. It's not going to fall. It's going to break down. It can't be built up. But with this chief cornerstone in place, then things can be built. The living stones can be put in place. The building can be, in, be constructed. And it can be built, and it has been built, and it is being built one generation to the next. And what we're told here is this rock makes all the difference. And what you do with this rock makes all the difference. Because we have this rock who is the rock in Zion, the chief cornerstone, but then he becomes the cornerstone that the builders rejected, and we're told he's the rock of offense. So there's two groups of people here that are going around this rock, that are having dealings with this rock. And there's one group of people that are believing in this rock and are seeing and believing that this this rock is the chief cornerstone, and there's another group of people that are offended by this rock and just throw this rock out. Nope. And what we're told here is that for those who, by grace, agree with Peter, there is honor and not shame. Honor. Honor and not shame. Brother and sister, there is great honor in being a Christian. Honor. There is a glory that comes from man that you don't want. But there is the kind of glory that comes from God. Please hear me say this. God honors you. And this is all by his grace. You see, the, the teachers of the law, they wanted the glory that comes from man and not the glory that comes from God. What is the glory that comes from God? It's the glory that God himself is recognizing us as his sons and daughters. He's recognizing us as his royal priesthood. There is honor in being a child of the Most High God. I don't know if you know this right now, but being a Christian is not the most popular thing in our society really unprecedented the media is evil and they hate your guts and i hate this country you flip on that tv and you'll find especially white christians white christian men right now are hated christians are not looked at with respect or honor but before the lord we have honor that's the kind of honor i want i want the honor that comes from him I don't care about the honor that comes from the praises of people. Why, why should we care that crazy people think much of us? I don't care about that at all. If, if clown world thinks I'm witty, I could care less. But what I want is the honor that comes from God. And here we're told, if we see this rock for who he is and love him, then we receive honor and there's no shame. None. No shame. 
Shame removed. This is what we see in the garden that Adam and Eve wanted to cover. And it's what everyone from the garden, of fo- garden forward has been trying to cover. This, this shame that they keep running from. They know it's there and they keep suppressing the truth. But there's this shame that just keeps gnawing from the inside out. They know something's not right. And so they keep trying to fix it. They'll fix it with stuff. They'll fix it with the life that they try to, to build for themselves. They'll trip, fix it with money. They'll fix it with whatever. I'm going to cover my shame. And we know from the Garden 4 the answer is the shedding of blood because God covered the shame of Adam and Eve and God has covered our shame through Jesus dying for all of our sins. So our shame is removed. So for us, this is wonderful news for those who are in Christ, for those who would bow their knee and trust in this rock of offense and not be offended, but come to him. There's honor and no shame. But for those who do not believe... They stumble, they disobey the word, they reject Jesus, and they will not receive honor, and shame will be theirs. If shame is removed for those who believe, for those who don't believe, shame remains. It's there. Shame remains. Um, This is why affirmation is so huge in our world today, because people are running from shame. They just want to be affirmed. Please somebody tell me that I'm good. Please somebody tell me that I'm doing something right. Please somebody be my cheerleader. Instead of recognizing the point of that shame, which is to drive them to Jesus, the one who takes away shame, instead they gather people around them to affirm shameful things. So affirm your sexuality choices. Affirm your anger. Affirm whatever it is that they're wanting to affirm. And so it's, it's affirm, affirm, because they, they, instead of bowing a knee and getting shame removed, they want to get affirmation to cover their shame. It's fig leaves. It may work for a while. That's why getting toxic people out of your life, how, how, how much have we heard about getting toxic people out of your life? Like The, the goal is get, get people around you that will celebrate you and get anybody that's toxic away Because they're not affirming. They're not giving you what you need. And we live in a society, the highest value in our society is narcissism and internal truth. Like narcissism is the highest virtue. If you don't love yourself in 2022, people think you need to go sit on a couch somewhere. If you're not obsessed with yourself and always taking selfies of yourself, what's wrong with you? You weirdo. Go talk to a psychiatrist. You can talk to mine right in my phone because everybody's got one. And so if if you're not narcissistic, and so people gather around these functional saviors, please just tell me what I want to hear. Please give it to me. I need the shame to be gone. For those who reject Jesus, the one who actually removes shame, shame will be theirs forevermore. It won't ever go away. It can't be covered. It cannot be taken away. In verse 8, we get this thing that at first, it's like, a, it's like that duct tape getting pulled off, but it's a great thing. Uh, reprobation, we're going to talk about for a second. And uh, in the end, when we get done with this, I just want you to trust God. Trust his character. Um, I trust God, the one who has declared the end from the beginning, more than I trust the nations of this world or more than I trust individuals in this world. And here's what's so great about the sovereignty of God. In the eternal state, when Christ is returned and his enemies are vanquished and we are with him forever and ever and ever, 
we will look back on everything in God's word, everything that happened in this world, and we'll see people in heaven and in hell, and we will declare God is just. We will not question him. We will not feel sorry for people that are in hell. We will say, God, you are just. We will not shed one tear for those who are in hell. Not one. I don't know if we'll even have the ability to understand. It seems like the chasm was a two-way view in Luke 16, but I don't exactly know. But we will eternally be thankful to God for his work and his sovereign hand in declaring the end from the beginning. Here's what it says. Verse 8b. They disobeyed. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Now, this idea of the sovereignty of God has been a recurring theme for Peter. Here we're told the reason they are stumbling over Jesus is because first they were disobeying the word. And this was really, th these people were really disobeying the word. It was their responsibility to obey the word and they were really disobeying the word. They wouldn't obey the word in this context means the Old Testament. If they would have obeyed the word, then they would not have stumbled. But since they refused to obey God's word, they stumbled over Christ. They didn't see that Jesus was the culmination of all of the promises and all the prophetic utterances and forward pointing of the Old Testament. And they stumbled. And even that stumbling and that disobeying the word that we see with the Jewish people and the Gentiles who are going to reject, and for those who reject today, even that stumbling and disobeying fits into God's sovereign plan. This is another instance. We've been going through the sovereignty of God in the, in the book on men's discipleships, men's, men's discipleship, and I will just say up front, I don't know how that's true. How? Their stumbling and disobeying was a part of God's plan. I don't know how. Now, not because um, they were destined, like, okay, think about this. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. This is not saying the people who are stumbling and disobeying were themselves determined to do so. The word destined means appointed. That's why in other translations, I believe the NASB again says appointed. Or the King James Version says appointed to do as they were appointed to do. And these are one of those passages that we read. And it's honestly, for, for a lot of people, it's like I, my gut can't handle reading passages like that. But isn't this what we're trying to do as we're going through the Bible is, is say, we're not going to have any problem passages. There's not going to be any scripture, not even, even one scripture. I have a scripture that we're going to have problems with. Whatever God says, we're going to believe, even if we don't fully understand it. But somehow or another, their disbelief fit into the destining or appointed plan of God. And they were destined by God for this disbelief. Now, it's one of these passages, again, it's like a window into reality. We have reality on our side, and then we have the true and utter reality on God's side and how the world works. It's almost like there's a curtain being pulled back, and we get to see not only from our side, which from our side is they stumble because they disobey the word. From our view is they're just disobeying God. But the second half of that is we get a window into God's dealings as they were destined to do. God has something to do with this disbelief. Somehow or another, it's fitting into his plan and purposes. In our minds, we're tempted to think that, uh, that God's not involved in anything like that. 
So from our side, we only see the activity man when somebody believes in the rock and then some stumble over the rock. And here's the thing about salvation. Here's what I'm convinced. Generally, people prefer deism when it comes to salvation of sinners. People prefer a God who leaves everything up to people. That's what, generally speaking, uh, many Christians just just want to imagine that God just lets everybody decide everything by themselves and he just honors what people decide. And so God just stands back, he's wound everything up, and then people just, the world's just going as the people wish it to go. And then God somehow or another intervenes every once in a while. And when it comes to salvation, it's this thing that just like, it's just all up to people. We completely miss Genesis chapter 3, where all people have already sinned and rebelled against God. But here, even though we think that people naturally prefer deism, um, I want us to prefer the potter and think about God. We want the potter to honor the clay instead of the clay honoring the potter. And here we're told that this disbelief and stumbling is a part of God's plan, appointed plan to happen. Uh, We're we're peeling back the layers. Now, for those who are aware of this discussion, this is a sidebar. This is a group within a group here because not everyone is aware of this discussion. I think this verse, along with John 10, Romans 9, Ephesians 1, are the main verses for the superlapsarian versus infralapsarian debate about the election of God. So if you're in that discussion or aware of that discussion, this is a part of it. And even though I subscribe to superlapsarianism, I have no problem with the inclusion of infralapsarian description of, descriptions of reprobation, reprobation. What in the world does that mean? Let me clarify. Apart from God's grace, everyone would be a reprobate even by their own choosing. Apart from God's grace. Everybody would be in this group of stumbling and disobeying the word if it wasn't for God's mercy. We would all be in that same place. Or we could say, apart from God's grace, we would be as they are. When we read as they were destined to do, we have to keep in mind the first part. They disobeyed the word. It was really them who stumbled over Christ. They heard the message and rejected Jesus. Remember, this was primarily written to Jewish Christians. Um, The other side of this is that they were appointed for that disbelief. What happened from the disbelief of the Jewish people. This is maybe like the cross, another insight into how even damnation of sinners can be for the good. The Jews rejecting Christ was a part of the plan to bring salvation to the world. If there were not people appointed for disbelief and stumbling, you and I, majority Gentiles in this room, would not have had access to the Holy of Holies. And so somehow or another, we get this, the, the, uh, the onions get peeled back, and there's like reality, and then you step into greater reality and greater, greater reality. God's dimension and layers to his activity are so, there's such depth there that we cannot fully understand. And a verse like this is just like one layer of the onion getting pulled away. They're disbelieving, and yet God has something to do with this disbelief, and yet they are punished for that disbelief. What is God doing? 
God planned and destined this, that his son would even be rejected and killed so that we would be saved. So, he, so destined that those would disbelieve so that salvation could come to the Gentiles, to the world, but then also we're told the plan was in place for the Jews and the Gentiles to kill Jesus. The Romans to kill Jesus. You might say, well, that's, what I'm, that's unfair. That, you mean Pontius Pilate, it was determined by God that he was going to do that? Yes. Absolutely. It was determined. And yet he's still held responsible for doing it. Well, how is that? I'm not God. I don't know. But here's what I trust. In the end of all things, I can trust my Heavenly Father. Peter invites us into these mysteries this is just in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And these are passages that are so often just you read past it. I don't get that. I don't like that. Next verse. You say, well, well that wasn't fair to, to Pilate. Take it up with God. Well, that's not fair with those who disbelieve the word as they were destined to. Take it up with God. Can you trust your heavenly father? I don't know but I know I can trust him. He is the potter, we are the clay. How do we respond to this? How do we respond? For the non-believer in the room, believe in the rock of offense. Don't be offended by Jesus. Jesus can remove your shame today. All of it. Stop chasing fig leaves trying to fix your shame problem. Try, stop trying to gather people around you to affirm your sinful and silly choices. Believe in the cornerstone. Believe in Jesus today and you won't be put to shame. Now for those who have, brothers and sisters, saints of God, the priesthood of all believers, let's enter into the holy of holies and sing to our glorious heavenly father. Let's look at what the angels long to look at and long to experience. Let's revel in it, enjoy it, and say, God, thank you for your mercy. Apart from your grace and mercy, I would be a reprobate just like they are. Apart from your mercy, I would be marching to hell just like they are, seeking affirmation all the way. So today, we get to respond. Those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and we get to praise God for his mercy, because without it, we would disobey the word and we too would march straight to hell. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Lead us as we sing. Unleash joy in this room.